writers have been arguing since you know Aristotle whether plot is more important than character or vice versa. My belief is that plot and character are not separate things. And great, truly epic storytelling is when you can tie in the fate of everyone in the world to one specific character's journey. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week's guest is the amazing David Hayter. In 2009, David realized a decades-long dream, writing a movie adaptation of Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' seminal graphic novel, Watchmen. Co-written by Alex C, Watchmen told the story of a dysfunctional band of retired superheroes in an alternate 1980s America. It was a gripping, morally complex deconstruction of society's obsession with superheroes that ushered in a whole new age of Cape Crusader cinema. With Watchmen back in the public consciousness thanks to last year's fantastic HBO TV series, we spoke to Hater about the incredibly different film Watchmen almost was. This is the story of a Watchmen movie that was slated to be directed by Paul Greengrass that was set in modern day with America and Iran on the brink of war, and that ends with the death of a character who's spared in the finished film. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamal Demek. David, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm uh, surprisingly good, given the, the uh, global state of the world. Um, and the current uh, setting of the nuclear clock. Uh, but uh, no, I'm, I'm doing, doing pretty well, and thank you for having me. Take me back. What is your first memory of reading the Watchmen comic? What, what kick-started this incredible attachment to this story that, that you have that made you battle so hard to get it made? Um, my first memory is uh, a friend of mine, John Lear, in Toronto. I was 15 years old. He was a, a comic book. We were both comic book collectors, and he came to me and said, "You have to read this comic book." And and um, he brought me the original uh, first few issues of Watchmen, which I hadn't been following. And I started to read it, and we both got obsessed. And uh, and then we waited each month for the next uh, issue to come out. And then uh, people probably don't remember but the last issue took months like was was late and so we were all freaking out trying to figure <laughs> out how it was going to end and uh, and I was pretty obsessed with it and then um so that was the first time I read it 1985 and then in 1997 I produced and starred in a little film called Burn uh which you can see on on YouTube um that uh and and so Somebody gave me their copy of the graphic novel, the, 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 the bound, fully bound graphic novel. <clears throat> and I sat in my dressing room between takes and I would read it. And I was producing my first movie. I mean, it was a $217,000 film. But I got to the scene where Rorschach um, is in prison and the guy's threatening to kill him and he throws the hot grease in his face and he turns to the prison uh, to the prison cafeteria and he says, none of you understand. I'm not locked up in here with you. You're locked up in here with me. And, and just chills ran down my spine. I was like, Oh my God, that's the greatest 
movie line that I've never heard in a, in a movie. <laughs> and I, ha I have to make this film. And there was no, at the time, in 97, there was no way I was ever going to get the chance to make the most difficult graphic novel adaptation of all time. Nobody, I wasn't anybody. Um, but I had delusion of, delusions of grandeur. And then, uh, <laughs> and then weirdly, two years later, I ended up writing the script for the first X-Men movie. And suddenly, uh, my, I had agents. I was a big writer. And people said, my agent said, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, if I'm the comic book movie guy, then I want to make the greatest, uh, I want to adapt the greatest comic book of all time. Mm. And that's how it started. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, people describing it as difficult. I mean, Terry, Terry Gilliam, who at one point was attached to direct, he called it unfilmable. What do yeah. you think? What do you think was so insurmountable to these people? Was it the, the structural complexity of the story kind of zigzagging out these different time periods? Was it the moral complexity of the original? What, what made Watchmen on, on paper so tricky to bring to the big screen? Uh, well, there's a number of um, aspects that make it difficult. First of all, it's, it's, incredibly complex um you know i i often describe it as a five-act structure but I, it might be a seven-act structure i mean it's it's um it's a number of interlocking character pieces uh that sort of check in with everybody along the way and 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 it's just not con constructed like anything you've ever seen before um i mean it's 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 mostly constructed with the complexity of like a Dickens novel or, or something. And so I, I didn't find it particularly difficult to adapt. The story is so well-written um, and so beautifully structured, even though it's unique. Uh, adapting it wasn't difficult, but convincing a studio that they should risk a hundred million plus on it uh, was difficult. Also, mm -hmm. because it's so intellectually profound because it's so dark and violent and um, you know, there's a number of elements that would certainly in the pre X-Men days preclude you from being able to get this made at all. Mm. Um, and I think for, you know, for Terry Gilliam, who is, you know, just a, an enormous hero of mine. Um, one of my favorite all time directors. Um, you know, he knew how big it was, and I think he didn't feel that it could be condensed into a, a two-hour and 40-minute or three-hour uh, format, which none of us were really sure that that could be done, uh, but we gave it a shot. Uh, I, I, I tried to, in my first draft, use everything that was amazing. Like not, I, I tried to edit it down without losing one single great line or great moment or anything that I felt made at Watchmen. So I think it, it just hadn't really been tried before to adapt it straight. And um, the thought was too overwhelming, but I, I was driven by my love of the material to, to give it a shot. Mm. And as you mentioned, it is dark, it is complex. It's all of the things that in that particular era of superhero movies, you can imagine studios kind of getting wrong. Um, oh, over the kind of course of your fight to make the film happen, did you encounter much in the way of studio execs who just didn't get it and wanted to take it in directions that went against the spirit of Alan's graphic novel? Yeah, Alan and Dave's graphic novel, but yeah. um, uh, I always want to credit Dave Gibbons, who was the artist who, who uh, created the visuals of it. Of course. Um, it's... 
Yeah, yeah, that was the that was that was my entire job was was kind of protecting the integrity of it from executives, well-meaning executives, but but nervous executives who didn't you know think that it could work in its natural form or who wanted to who, who thought that there were too many characters. So, you know, can you just cut it down into like Dan and Rorschach or or just make it about Dr. Manhattan or take Dr. Manhattan out or what you know everybody wanted to try all these different things and i just kind of held to my opinion that the story itself is what makes it watchmen it's not just the individual characters it's not the individual pieces it's like a clock yeah. it only works if you've got all of those pieces um working in tandem so uh yeah i had a, a, a one of our executives at paramount said i i don't understand the script and i said you do understand the script because i've seen your notes you clearly understand the script you just are afraid that the audience isn't going to understand it and that was what we were dealing with for um uh, you know pretty much constantly <laughs> from the time i picked it up to the time that we uh, we got it made which was 9 years am i right in thinking yeah yeah it was uh, well i first signed the con- i first got into it in in um yeah, 2000, the movie got made in, in 2009. But I signed my first contract with um, with Universal on September 10th, 2001. Uh, so the day before 9-11 and wow. uh, signed the contract. And then, you know, <laughs> you know, something very similar to the ending of the book occurred in real life. And I thought from that moment we were dead. But um, uh, but we, we kept on and... Uh, eventually got it made and were there moments across that nine-year struggle where you did start to think it's not going to happen for us oh yeah well (laughs) i mean any movie every movie i've ever worked on that 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 got made uh has taken an average of five to ten years and every day there's something that's going to tank the whole thing and and most times it does most times the movie dies and and you move on to something else um so yeah, we we were at four different studios: um, Universal, Paramount. I'm sorry, Universal, Revolution, Paramount, and then Warner Brothers, and mm-hmm. uh, and nobody really wanted to make it, um, but nobody wanted anybody else to make it and make it a hit. <laughs> so you know they were all afraid to turn it down, but they were all afraid to pull the trigger, um, and it was really only when we were at Warner Brothers and they said we've got this director who's just finishing a movie called 300 that we're very excited about and um, which was Zack Snyder, of course. And when he heard that we were doing Watchmen, he said, I want to do that as my next film. And that's the only way that it, it got made was, was a rising superstar director said, this is, this is something we have to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it got greenlit, but, but without Zack, it, it would have never happened. That is interesting because you sent over not one, but two drafts of Watchmen out of, I mean, how many do you think you made? How many drafts do you think you did over the course of that nine-year period? I, I don't know. Um, I don't know, 30, 40, possibly 50 drafts. Wow. Uh, you know, you're just constantly working on it, so mm-hmm. um, the drafts kind of blend together. <laughs> yeah. But one of them, uh, so the first you sent over was your first draft for Universal, which you were slated to direct. But the second is from when Paul Greengrass of the Bourne movies was attached to direct. 
which is, I mean, as a kind of exercise in imagining a parallel dimension movie is really interesting because Paul is a director that I really associate with this kind of more gritty, realistic filmmaking. And Watchmen is so, from the comic to Zack's version, so stylistic. How do you think it would have, um, yeah, I mean, so how do you think that film would have panned out? We actually got pretty far with the Paul Greengrass version. We almost, we were, I think, three months from shooting when, when, um, when the president of the studio got fired and, and, and our movie got killed. Um, so there's about, there's probably 40 or 50 minutes of Paul's version that have been previs. Mm. And there's so many cool things. I mean, obviously, so Paul's style is like hardcore action documentary um, you know, very realistic yeah. and very gritty. Whereas, you know, whereas Zach's style, as you say, is is beautiful and 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 stylized and and um, uh, so yeah, the two versions were very different. Um, you can see, I loved Paul's idea that he said, you know, when we open on Eddie Blake, I want to see him. He's like Superman, you know, he's flying and his hair is going and he's handsome and everything. And then you pull back and you realize. He's plummeting off this building. So, you know, you sort of subvert everybody's expectations from the first image. Um, and he also, he found a picture of a homeless guy. Uh, you know, it was like a, a book of art, artistic photographs of, of the homeless. And there was this one guy whose face was so caked in dirt that you, it, it was like a mask. You couldn't, you couldn't, you know, see his face anymore. Mm. You see his eyes sort of peering out of this caked black dirt and his hair is all matted and everything. And he said, that's how I want, you know, Rorschach to look in uh, without his mask. Mm. So that, so that Rorschach really never took off his mask, you know, um, there was so many cool things like that. And he, what else? Uh, he said that the, the, the steps that were leading up to the end of the world, he, you know, he and I went through it and he's like, okay, so first is this, you know, attack on a, on a, you know, sort of a Potemkin attack on a American warship, then this, then this, you know, the steps that boom, 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 the drumbeat that's leading us to war. And, you know, and that was kind of a cool documentarian's view of how you set up that world. So yeah, it would have been very, very different. And, um, uh, but it would have been very cool as well. I would have loved to have seen Paul's version. Well, let's let's dive in a little bit to the script that you were developing with Paul. So one of the kind of like from from the off, there's there's a big difference right in the very first line. Rorschach's journal, October twelfth, two thousand and six. So this is set in modern day. Can you tell me a little bit about how you tried to pull Watchmen into present day, and yeah, some of the avenues you explored, and why you ultimately decided that hold on, maybe this is an 80s specific story? Well, first of all, I, I originally wrote it to be set in, in 1985. I, I figured just, just to, you know, adapt the book directly. Um, I think it was Paul who felt that, and, and I don't disagree with this. I, you know, the world is so strange of Watchmen. It's our world, but it has been altered in, in many ways. The timeline has been changed. And I think Paul felt, and I don't, I don't think this is wrong is that adding a period aspect to it, putting it in the, in the eighties would make it difficult to know what was eighties and what was Watchmen, you know? Yeah. Um, the problem was that we still needed the Vietnam war. I, I, I felt, you know, the Vietnam war and Dr. Manhattan winning that war 
for America is the pivotal change in, in, in the book's history. Yeah. And it changes everything. Um, and I always thought that was key to, to the story. If we had won Vietnam, what would America have, have become? And um, so, yeah, so, so I, I believe it was Paul's decision to say, let's set it modern day. We'll keep Vietnam um, and, and sort of update everything. So instead of, uh, you know, Nixon getting six terms in office, it was Reagan. And like, you know, he was just, you know, being wheeled around in a jar or something. <laughs> um and uh, yeah, so that's so that's how that happened, and then uh, and then it was Zach's decision to to put it back in in the eighties, which uh, which I you know I think worked just as well. Um, the thing I liked about it being in the eighties was that in the mid eighties, you know, kids forget this, but when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, they were telling us you could have half an hour's notice, and then we're all dead. That, that nuclear bombs could be flying at any moment and, um, and you'll get, you know, 20, 30 minutes notice and then the world ends. And that was enormously stressful. Yeah. Uh, so, and that really fed into the writing of this book, why it, why it was so important for Alan to make these points and, and for us to hear them. So, uh, so I think going back to the 80s as well had, uh, uh, you know, has a certain value uh, mm. as well. The standoff in the graphic novel, of course, is between the US and Russia, but in this modern day version, it's between America and Iran. So we have a newscaster early on who describes an incident at an Iranian nuclear plant that America is denying having any part in. So yeah, was that just kind of part of the process of like updating it, looking around and thinking, who are the countries with the like most political tensions at the moment? Yeah, well, I think that was I think the Iranian component was directly suggested by Paul Greengrass. Um, you know, just looking again, you know, with his sort of documentarian eye, just looking at the current you know status of the world and where the flashpoints might be and what might spark uh, a nuclear war. Also, in two thousand and six, Russia and the U.S. weren't particularly contentious with each other. Russia was, was still recovering from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, so I think the feeling was like, um, like with the murder of Archduke, Archduke Ferdinand sparking World War I, that Paul wanted you know, minor, minor incidents to start setting off a chain of events that was gonna lead to the end of the world. And as you mentioned, it, the, the script starts with this incredible image that sort of overturns your expectations. Uh, so we start with a man in his 60s, handsome, despite the jagged scar which runs from mouth to ear like a gaping smirk. It reveals that Eddie Blake is falling 30 stories from his penthouse apartment. So obviously all the way through seemingly all these drafts you did, there was a willingness on your part to stay true to the novel. And this sort of falls exactly into that. Were you always going to start with with this scene at this point, just as it does in the book? Yeah, uh... The death of Eddie Blake is the is the is the spark that that lights the the whole powder keg and um, so yeah I, I don't think there's a single draft I mean there's a little moment in my very first draft of Rorschach you know walking along the streets and sort of lamenting the fact that that the heroes are gone and he's he's in hiding and so on and so forth. But he immediately finds, he, he, he sees the body of Edward Blake hit, hit the pavement and then investigates. That's what's so great about the story. It starts off with, with the murder of some guy, some older guy, and 
you know, nobody thinks it's that big a deal. And yet it's tied into the fate of the world and, and the entire unraveling of these people's lives. Uh, so yeah, it was always going to, look, the, the point was I, as a screenwriter warned myself, never, never get to thinking that you're smarter than Alan Moore writing his masterpiece, you know, always default to whatever was going on in Alan's remarkable brain. So yeah. So anytime we had, or I had major questions about it, I, I just relied on the book, tried to find answers in the book, try to figure out how to move those pieces around so that so that a, a movie going audience would understand it but but never to try to out clever it. I, it that always drives me nuts when you when you take an amazing piece of material and then change it to to make it your own mm. you know it's like that's such an arrogant unless you can make it better but that's such an arrogant way to approach great material i think mm. and that that approach and that attitude seemed to win you some favor with alan right he i think he called you or you called him yeah yeah we spoke we spoke a few times somebody i think it was a reporter gave me his home number and i you know i just called him up and <laughs> i said look i'm adapting your masterpiece over at universal and and i know that you have great antipathy towards hollywood and i don't blame you in the least uh, but I just want to let you know how much this book means to me and how important it is that it stay true to your vision. And if you want to be involved at all, let me know. And he said, uh, he said, Oh no, David, you know, the book is my story and the movie is your story. Um, but you give me a call anytime you want to discuss it. So every now and again, I would call him up. And one time I, I said, Alan, you busy. And he said, Oh no, I'm just uh, baking muffins. And, um, <laughs> which I, I never forgot that. <clears throat> so, yeah, so I made it clear to him, you know, and Alan does dislike Hollywood and he, and, you know, not to speak for him, but I, I think he's made this clear, you know, the idea of spending $150 million on a movie is, is uh, kind of appalling to him. And, yeah. and I get that, but he was so kind to me as a, as a fellow writer and um, as a fan. And so, uh, so yeah, he was always he was always he was always very supportive of, of me personally, if not you know thrilled about the movie process. And one thing that isn't here yet in the script is the incredible introduction scene set to a Bob Dylan song. So in the final film, you have this sequence that just packs in so much exposition about the rise and fall of these masked heroes in this alternate reality. I was wondering how that scene came about and and how late in the day it was. That that sequence was entirely conceived of and executed by Zack Snyder. Really? And to, to I, I don't know how it was how it was done. I mean, you know, I wasn't around when they made that sequence. I just sat in the in the at the premiere with my jaw on the floor. It's it's one of the greatest opening sequences of any film ever. And I talked to Alex C, who who was on set when they when they did it, and he said that the studio warners kept saying why are we paying for this crazy complex opening sequence like this is crazy and apparently zach said to alex take it out of the script i know what i want to shoot mm -hmm. um so we'll just go do it anyway <laughs> like like you just toss off the most incredibly complex uh opening title sequence in history he recreated the kennedy assassination mm -hmm. among you know, a hundred other things. And it wasn't even in the script. Like, I don't know how he did it. It's, it, that's, that's a miracle to me. I, I, 
I, I just, I've never even asked Zach. I can't wrap my head around it, <laughs> frankly. So uh, I'm as stunned as anybody. I'm more stunned than anybody because I've never even heard of not putting something that complex in a script. Let's talk a little bit about the characters, how you saw them, and what traits in them from the Watchmen comic you really wanted to protect. So we've already met Rorschach. Who was he? Who was that character in your eyes, and and how did you go about translating him, this disturbing antihero? Rorschach is somebody who he's he's a small guy he's been abused his whole life had this horrible childhood and was bullied and then he got to a point where he just snapped and wouldn't take it anymore and his internal viciousness drove him to fight back against these bullies and against and later on against criminals or or what have you anything he viewed as injustice would be taken on in a brutal and unforgiving fashion and it he really represents our darkest desires in a in a comic book character now, one of the reasons that batman is arguably the most popular comic book character is because he there was a great line in a batman comic when i was a kid where he said i don't care about the law i care about justice and there's something so satisfying, so, so compelling about somebody who will do the right thing and kick ass in the process of doing it. Mm. But what Rorschach does is he takes it so far that the audience is forced to go, do we really want somebody this unhinged making decisions as to what is right and what is wrong? Yeah. And he's kind of the ultimate sort of right wing fascist illustration of how comic book heroes could work. But at the same time, like Wolverine, he's so unhinged. He's just a delight to watch. You know, you, you, there's something so freeing in what Rorschach is about that that you know it's a very it, it's a very satisfying character. It's it's you know arguably my favorite character in the whole in the whole piece. As as you say, he does represent these dark dark impulses, and it's been interesting. I definitely have always categorized him as an anti-hero, but. It's been interesting since the Watchmen film watching people misinterpret him as a hero. So, I mean, as this kind of badass character to aspire to, Ted Cruz called him his favorite superhero. Oh, which... God, that's upsetting. <laughs> yeah. I don't um, like that... having anything in common with Ted Cruz. Exactly. Has that been, been strange to watch? And what do you think it says about our society that so much of the nuance around the character was missed? To a certain extent, Warshak is the hero. You know, his, it may be imprudent to grab a man's hand and crush a glass in it and, and, you know, squeeze it to get information. But at the same time, Rorschach is trying to do the right thing. He's trying to solve a number of murders and he's trying to stop the deaths of you know, a billion, or, you know, millions of people. Mm. So in a way, Rorschach is the purest hero. You know, even even when they get met with this moral compromise at the end, and I, I don't know how spoily you want to get here, um, but, you know, basically the person trying to save the world is like, if we sacrifice millions of lives, we'll save billions. And And he's right. But Rorschach isn't, Rorschach's the only one who's unwilling to go along with that plan. He's like, mm -hmm. no, 
if you murder millions of people, you need to be punished. So I disagree that Rorschach is, cannot be viewed as a hero. I think he's definitely a flawed hero and definitely an anti-hero in, in, in that, you know, he, he goes way too far. But at the same time, you know, he takes a cleaver to the head of this guy who, who murders this little girl. And, I, you know, would I do that? I don't know, but I don't necessarily object. Mm. Um, you know, he just plays out our darkest impulses. But at the same time, his, his morality is literally black and white. Mm. And if you're bad you're going down. And so, so I think there is a heroic aspect to him. Mm. That's not just, you know, as opposed to the comedian who is completely amoral, who kind of goes where the action is and where the political power is and has no sense of right and wrong at all. Um, that's an anti-hero. I, I don't I don't even know if he's got any heroic aspects to him at all, except that he finds out about the grand plan and he gets upset about it. You know, so yeah. that shows a little bit of conscience, <laughs> but um, but no, but I think Rorschach's far more heroic than uh, than say the comedian. We then meet a character who fits into who's who's similarly hard to morally categorize. So we meet Adrian, um, who has a slightly different character arc in in this in this version. So as we meet him as he's advising the military, he's telling them we're we're close, gentlemen, very close to unlocking the secrets of the twenty first century. In a matter of months, we'll be able to provide the world with cheap, clean, and infinitely renewable energy. So he shows particles that glow blue like Dr. Manhattan. He's been replicating his energy signature. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your approach to Adrian, what it was you loved about him, or sort of found compelling, at the very least, about him in the graphic novel that you wanted to kind of keep intact as you brought him to screen? Yeah, Adrian is interesting. Um in that he is all ego, you know, Adrian at one point, you know, he calls himself the smartest man in the world, but we never have any empirical evidence that, that that's true. And he actually says in his sort of self-reflective moments in the book, I think I made myself, I think I chose to be smart. Mm -hmm. So it's like, is he really smart or is he, is this just his, his ego saying, look, I'm the best in the world. So, only I can solve these problems. And when you do that, it's, so, it's, it's a parallel problem to what Dr. Manhattan has, which is once your ego becomes so all-encompassing, it gets very difficult to know if you're doing the right thing or if you're doing the thing that aggrandizes you. And um, so, you know, Adrian has this sort of Elon Musk type character to a Elon Musk wasn't a person when we, you know, started this. I mean, he mm -hmm. was, but we didn't know he was. <laughs> sure. um, but a guy who is smart enough to say, no, let's, let's break the former paradigms. Let's say we need clean energy for the world. We can't keep destroying the environment and we can't keep risking nuclear war. So he sets his mind to solving all of those, all of those things. And to Adrian, good is morally relative. So again, if millions of people die, but billions of people get a better world out of it, that equation is, is uh, acceptable to him. You know, lives are just numbers at that point. So uh, all of these characters kind of revolve around a view of your own ego versus the good of the world. And, mm. and, and they're all sort of 
uniquely flawed in, in those ways. And that's really an amazing. And as we go forward, the sort of thrust of the story is the same. Uh, but there are, there are a few things that sort of condensed and collapsed in on each other. So there's, uh, instead of the Minutemen, which we have in the graphic novel, they're just sort of part of the Watchmen. They're the early kind of Watchmen uh, superiors. And um, yeah, I was wondering sort of, was that just a case of trying to streamline things and bring it in under that that three hour mark, as you mentioned earlier? Uh, yeah, well, I don't think it, I, I don't think it cut any time from the script, but um, but I think the feeling was that it's it's difficult to explain to a movie going audience that yes there were well the real fact is there were the Minutemen, then there was like the new Minutemen, and nobody was ever called the Watchmen. Mm. Um, and I didn't want anybody to be called Watchmen because they're not. It's it, it, the, the the title is a metaphor. Mm. Um, There's just I that think, one bit of graffiti on the back of the wall or something in the in the graphic. Yeah, novel, well that that, right? that 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 graffiti keeps reappearing, but it's who watches the Watchmen. But that can apply to the police. That can apply to anybody in authority. It's it's who watches the people in power. Um, and uh, so, but I think it was easier. You know, in the final version, I think it was easier probably for Zach to just say they were the Watchmen, and that's it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's, it's just uh, some things are, you know, like the giant squid at the end of the book. It, I love the giant squid at the end of the book, but it was so complex to have to explain this extra alien squid event that it would have taken another half an hour screen time. So so we did. Uh, there were certain things that we did simplify for the sake of the movie. going on. Mm. It seems like the things that you did condense or simplify. You maybe asked yourself the question, is this change still in the spirit of the original book? And if so, you went ahead with it, right? Absolutely. I mean, nothing, you know, and this was the riskiest part of it. You know, nothing could stay in the film that I didn't think that Alan would, might have thought of in, in that vein, or it didn't, or like, as you say, that didn't fit into exactly to the world and the tone of the, of the book. So we then get to the, the, the prison scenes, which from the sounds of it was like that, that these are the scenes that sold you on Watchmen in the first place. Oh yeah. I mean, it's such an amazing turn in the book. Uh, you know, there's, there's so much buildup to it. So there's Dan, who we haven't discussed, but he's, he's the woefully human man among all of this. He's a good man, doesn't have any particular powers. He's completely impotent in, in, in both metaphorically and literally. Mm. And then he, you know, gets his groove back, so to speak. And the moment he does he makes this decision and tells Lori, I think we should break Rorschach out of prison. And it just comes out of nowhere. (laughs) Like there's no, there's nothing in the story that would indicate that he would ever do this. And the audience is dying because Rorschach is in prison and nobody's coming to save him. You know, everybody's just going to let him die. And then when Dan says it, you're like, no, that's so awesome. (laughs) It's so awesome. And it's just stupid and reckless but it's his friend and it's the right thing to do. And, and there's such a joy in Dan and Lori just cutting loose saying, I don't care what the world says. I don't care that the world might come to an end. This is the right thing to do. And we're going to go kick ass to get it done. And so, yeah, that's, that it's, it's, it was just a joy writing it, reading it, you know, that whole, that whole sequence is, is an illustration of a man and a woman sort of coming back to life, coming back to what it is that they 
are meant to do. And so, yeah, it's, it's very, um, it's very fulfilling. And, and, and I also love that Rorschach's not particularly surprised to see them. You know? <laughs> yeah. He's like, I, I, knew, I knew you'd do the right thing in the end. And, you know, I'm just going to go to the bathroom and I'll be out. <laughs> That's a fun detail, as is um, in this version of the script, Dan accidentally burning his house down while trying to show off Archie to Laurie. Oh, well, that's in the that's in the book. Uh, mm. I, well, she sets it off. She's the one who she's looking for a cigarette lighter, and she hits the flamethrower. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we didn't we didn't want to lose that. So we eventually get to that scene of Laurie on Mars trying to convince Doctor Manhattan to save humanity. Um, what is it about that moment in the comic book that you wanted to sort of translate purely to the screen? Because it, it plays like, it plays out pretty much exactly as it does on the page. What do you love about that moment that you wanted to kind of replicate authentically? People, writers have been arguing since, you know, Aristotle about whether plot is more important than character or vice versa. My belief... Um, fed by a, a writer named Laos Egri, who wrote The Art of Dramatic Writing, is that plot and character are not uh, separate things. They are completely entwined. And great storytelling is when you can, uh, well, truly epic storytelling is when you can tie in the fate of everyone in the world to one specific character's journey and that's very difficult to do um and the most successful uh versions of that are frodo in lord of the rings luke in in star wars these two characters are are arguably the smallest characters in their universe and yet the fate of the world the fate of everybody hinges on their actions what alan did was set up a scenario where doctor if dr manhattan doesn't come back to earth the earth dies and he doesn't care you know he, he can't see any value in human life and yet he find in plumbing through the depths of laurie's memory finds this incident that's so human and so flawed and so tragic that it makes him understand that laurie as a singular entity as this as this woman that he loves is a miracle and that if she's a miracle, that all human life is a miracle. And if all human life is a miracle, he should go back and save the world. And it's, <clears throat> it's so mind-bogglingly brilliant. And from a writer's standpoint, it's like this weird incident that happened before this character was born saves everybody on the planet. Is, is, um, that's just storytelling beyond. That's, that's why the book is on the Time 100 Greatest Novels of the 20th century list so by this point we're deep in the third act and as in the final version of the film dan and rorschach track adrian to his ice fortress um adrian it's revealed orchestrated the iranian nuclear plant attack that we heard about at the beginning of the film and then things get interesting in ways that veer off slightly from what we saw in the final film so adrian uh, broadcasts a, f a fake version of Dr. Manhattan to the world and appearing in the sky above all these cities simultaneously. And he says, I am Dr. Manhattan. The years I've watched you barrel ignorantly down the path towards destruction. From this moment on, you shall, you shall change your ways of violence or be destroyed. And then the skies around the world flood with rippling blue energy and 
all hell breaks loose, people are incinerated as this kind of like warning blast. What was the inspiration behind that? So everything is orchestrated by by Adrian. Every every step, you know, all the all the steps to Armageddon that that Paul Greengrass was asking for were, you know, the murder of the comedian, the setup at the at the uranium plant. All of that is orchestrated by Adrian, and we knew that it was going to be very difficult to do the ending of the book. Um, and plus, since nine eleven had happened, we also I didn't feel that we should have those images of all the dead bodies in Times Square and. I felt that that was not appropriate. Um, so I, so that inspired me to say people should just be, you know, blown to shadows like they are, like the Hiroshima shadows that are painted on the walls in the comic book. Um, and, you know, at one point I had him using like a, 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 a sun laser beam, which was a terrible idea. And, and um, just trying to figure out how, how to make this ending work. And at one point, uh, Darren Aronofsky was attached to direct uh, for a weekend. And I, I flew, literally for a weekend. I flew to New York for the weekend and, um, and we chatted about, about it. And then when I came back, Paramount said, Darren can't do it. He's, he's you know, we've got to get the fountain finished and so on and so forth. So he stepped aside, but he sent me a note saying, I have a friend who's a, a, a physicist who had an idea for the ending of the movie. And it was, what if Dr. Manhattan was the agent of destruction? And that just clicked into place in my brain. And I was like, of course, that's what it should be. There's only one element of supernatural magic in this story, and it's Dr. Manhattan. So, and Adrian has been taking his energy to create, you know, clean energy around the world. So why couldn't he replicate it to make it look like Dr. Manhattan was destroying all these cities? So that just was a revelation to me and, and uh, felt like an answer that, that fit the world pretty well. Mm. And that's, uh, that's how that came together. Did that answer your question? I, I can't remember how we started. <laughs> yeah, perfectly. What was it about the squid that felt just like it wasn't quite going to work within this story? Yeah, yeah. And again, let me just say, I love the squid. Mm-hmm. in the story i think it's i think it's amazing it's a, you know great wonderful image and um but like i say i have a philosophy that you want to keep your magic as simple as possible so again in lord of the rings the ring is the source of all magic uh it's it's the source of the elves magic it's the source of uh, the other rings magic it's there's only one source of magic you get rid of it the world changes um the force is the only source of magic in star wars so here we have like i say we have one source of magic and it's dr manhattan that is one fantasy leap that we take and say this is a man who can do anything the squid was an additional supernatural sort of element that was different from dr manhattan and would have required a lot of explanation so in the book, there's a whole thing about he had these writers and artists and geneticists working on this thing, and they made it, and then they had to kill those guys, and then they tra- teleported the squid in. But it wasn't just a squid. It was a telepathic beam that like caused all these people to have nightmares and blood, no- bloody noses and, and whatnot. It was just a lot to explain. Like mm-hmm. It would have taken another half an hour 
of uh, screen time to just explain why a giant squid, how did it get there? What was the impact? Why did it have psychic powers? It was just, it was just too much in a movie that was already packed with, um, with what I would argue is the more, more important stuff, which is the, the character, uh, the character journeys. Mm. Um, and it didn't really ap apply to them at all. Tying it back to Dr. Manhattan sort of gave Dr. Manhattan a cool ending and made, and made Adrian in a way, the manipulator of Dr. Manhattan. If Dr. Manhattan didn't exist, Adrian would be the most powerful man in the world, but he does. So Adrian's ego drives him to come up with a plan that says, no, I've, I've used you. I am the most powerful man in the world and I used you as a pawn. So um, I think that appeals to Adrian's ego as well. So it just, it just seemed to make, it was a lot cleaner storytelling wise and it, and it made a lot of sense, a lot of sense from the uh, character perspective. Mm. So yeah, as you say, it was so much cleaner and it did serve the story but as a purist and as someone who loves the the graphic novel was there a bit of a like deep breath moment of truth i hope people are gonna accept this change and they're gonna understand the reasons why i'm making this change to their beloved novel well from the perspective of of a, being a fan myself and and a fanatic myself there was certainly a reticence to change anything um but you know people ask me all the time about the pressures, the fan pressure to, to, to satisfy the fans of Watchmen or X-Men or what have you. Mm. And honestly, I don't feel any of that. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm as much of a fan as anybody else. Um, I try to get to the root of what is appealing about the X-Men world or the Watchmen world. And I try to tell that world as truthfully and as close to the way it was presented to me as a fan as possible. And I figure if I'm satisfied with it, most fans will be satisfied with it. But you, you are never going to please everybody and trying to do so will only drive you crazy. So I, I don't, it sounds callous and it is callous, but I, I, <laughs> you know, I feel like if I do my job properly, enough fans will go, yeah, that was awesome. That, that felt like the experience of reading the books. Um, and that's good enough for me. I, you know, worrying about the 12% of people who are going to never speak to me again because of the squid is not something that's for, foremost in my brain. Right at the end, there's this fight between Adrian and Dan. Rorschach has been shot. Adrian beats Dan and looms over him. He asks him before he's presumably about to kill him, why an owl? What's frightening about an owl? And then Dan opens his hand and reveals that he's been holding this, this remote. He says, because you never hear an owl coming. And then behind Adrian, floodlights blaze, the owl ship dives through the clouds and crashes, plowing into Adrian. Adrian dies. Can you tell me a little bit about that ending and sort of why you, for a moment there, were exploring if it would be more satisfying to see Adrian die having committed this atrocity? Look, I love that ending. I, I, I really, if there's one thing I really regret about being lost from my drafts, it was, it was that ending. Um, because I felt like, I feel like Dan is a passenger in the story and he kind of gets buffeted around by the winds of, of everybody, the more powerful people. And he kind of just, you know, in the movie, he beats up Adrian, Adrian allows him to punch him a bunch of times, but, but it's not, it's not particularly satisfying. What I wanted was Rorschach, um, can't live with it. 
and says, no, never compromise, even in the face of Armageddon. Justice is justice, and people have to be told. And to save the world, Dr. Manhattan blows him up, you know, in front of Dan's eyes. And it's just so horrifying and so tragic to Dan. But they make it clear to Dan, if, if, Adrian, if it was revealed that Adrian was behind this, the world goes back to nuclear Armageddon. You have to keep the secret. So what I wanted was, in the middle of the night, for Dan to be sleeping in Karnak, he's cuddled up with Laurie, and he wakes up, and he just can't live with it. And what he's realized from his, what he's learned from his friend Rorschach is justice is justice, and evil must be punished. And the second thing that he realizes is the world can't be allowed to find out about Adrian's plan but that doesn't mean Adrian needs to be alive to enjoy the fruits of his labors. You know, he, he can go. So, and the thing that I really love about that ending is, is Dan goes up to that room to fight, to kill Adrian, knowing that he can't, knowing that he will never beat him, that there, there is no way that the man outclasses him on every level. And he's probably just going to his own death, but it doesn't matter because for his friend, Rorschach, he's going to see the right thing done. And then finally, what I really, really love about that ending is half an hour before they've left the owl ship frozen in the, in the, in the, uh, Arctic Antarctic tundra. And he says, I'm going to set the engines to, to, to defrost and they just leave it. And you've forgotten all about the ship until mm -hmm. he presses that button. And then boom, there's Archie and it comes through. And really, and the other thing I love about it is that um, the sh when the ship comes in to crush Adrian, it's probably going to crush Dan too. And he just kind of lucks out, you know, mm -hmm. it like smashes Adrian, but he ends up like sort of wedged underneath it and he's fine. And, um, so I was really sorry that they didn't use that, that ending because I thought that it really paid off Dan's character in a hugely significant way in a, in a way that, that you don't really get in the, in the final version, but yeah. you know, mm -hmm. Sometimes your darlings are going to die. <laughs> so talk to me about the reaction to the film. Oh, it was very controversial when it came out. And, and in fact, uh, Kenneth Turan, who was, the, who was the main film critic at the LA Times, his, the title of his review was The Masks Are Off, and uh, as, as meant as an insult. Um, now, a lot of people didn't get it. And a lot of people were offended by it because it was so violent. Um, a lot of people were confused. A lot of people hated it, and uh, or they were confused by it, or they were offended by it. And um, and so we made, I think we made a hundred million domestic and a hundred million international. But but the movie was very expensive. So at the time, it was considered particularly successful. But over time, I, I actually heard internally from Warner Brothers that they were recalibrating it as a success, that it was a, um, you know, sort of a groundbreaking film for them. And, and so they were reevaluating it as, as something they were happy that they'd done. Um, but, uh, but I also felt, you know, I always knew it was going to be weird and I always knew it was going to be divisive. And I kind of felt like they shouldn't spend more than $80 million on it. Like, uh, like the first X-Men movie. Uh, but they spent a lot of money on it. I, and I was like, it's not Spider-Man. It's not Batman. Like, this is not easily digestible. Mm. 
this is a hard R twisted epic. And um, so, yeah, so, but, but basically I get so much love for it now that, that it's very gratifying that, that people have, have learned to appreciate it for what it is. Mm. And for you on a personal level, that kid who waited all that time for the final issue to come out and, and who's obsessed with this story for so long that they've labored and labored and labored to be able to make it. Um, did it, was it satisfying for you personally? Where do you, how do you kind of reflect back on the experience of making Watchmen now? It was very satisfying for me to take that journey. It was very, very, very satisfying for me to see that the final film was a true adaptation of the book. You know, that it, that was my only goal was, was to make sure to protect the material, to make sure that it felt like a true Watchmen adaptation. And, and it does, um, to actually watch a film that I've worked on is, I don't find to be particularly fun. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you see all the things that you wish were there or you wish weren't there or all the mistakes you made it. You know, I always say that it's a bummer to be Steven Spielberg because he can never sit down and watch Raiders lost dark and just appreciate it. You know, all he's doing is like, Oh God, that was terrible. That day was so hot. Um, the snake bit me on, on that day. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't, I, I can't watch the, the X-Men movies without being like, Oh God, why did I do that? Or, or, you know, remember that horrible day. Um, so yeah, so the experience of watching it, I'm I'm so grateful that it got made, and I'm so grateful to Zach and and Warner's that they made it the way they did. Um, but it is hard to uh, it's hard to watch anything you've made. That's just a personal feeling of mine. And do you still see echoes of the themes of Watchmen, the imagery and ideas of Watchmen in in contemporary life? So obviously, last year we had the acclaimed Watchmen TV show, which I'm, I'm guessing you caught a bit of. Did you enjoy it? I did. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I watched the whole thing. Um, yeah, I thought it was really, it was beautifully executed. And um, that episode six, where she's reliving the memories of her grandfather, I thought yeah. was spectacular. Um, the way they wove issues of race into it was so brilliant and, and gutsy. The actors were amazing. You know, its legacy sort of carries on there. But at the same time, I think that the the darker cynicism and more profound ideas echo through uh, Logan and, you know, Batman versus Superman. Um, I, I, I think it showed people, you know, you get something like suicide squad where it's like, Oh, the bad guys are going to be the heroes. Like mm. you, you see a lot more variety in, in what they're willing to put into a comic book movie now than you did back then. And I think to a certain extent, Watchmen, um, played a role in that. It demanded that comic book movies be smarter and, uh, and deal with headier issues than who was going to punch who and, you know, who was going to punch whom. Uh, <laughs> yeah. David, um, your new show, Warrior Nun, has just hit Netflix. It is awesome and completely delivers on that amazing name. Um, so I, I know that you're executive producer on that show and you have responsibilities beyond writing, but you, you did write a couple of episodes for its first season. And I, I wanted to ask, have you changed much as a screenwriter from Watchmen? Do you still do you still have the same kind of writing rituals and approach to writing? Yeah, I think the rituals are the same. I mean, to me, you 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 get up and you write, you know, for a good two three hours every morning, and that's it. There's no writer's block. There's no 
you know, you protect your time and you go out and you do it. And that's the same as I was doing. So I was living in Soho um, at the Soho Hotel in London working on the Greengrass version. And I'd get up and I'd go to the Starbucks around the corner and I'd write for three hours and listen to Green Day's American Idiot and, and just write. Um, I think I've changed in that I'm a lot more confident in my voice uh, now. I think that, you know, Warrior Nun, particularly my episodes, really, you know, I, I, I'm a lot freer to be silly, to be funny, to be, um, to push the limits in, in ways that I think I was a little more careful about back in, in the early 2000s. Um, and, you know, when I was working on Watchmen, like I say, I'm adapting the work of a far superior writer in Alan Moore. So luckily, I didn't have any youthful ego that said, oh, you got to make this your own, you know, just make it Alan's and, and you know, that's, that's more than enough. Um, and I, I wouldn't change that today. Uh, but, but I have changed in, in just in my basic approach to screenwriting, my basic confidence in my own, um, voice. Mm. And when, where can we next expect to see that voice? What are you working on at the moment? What's coming up? I can't tell you what it is, but, uh, I've closed a deal to executive produce an animated series that I'm also going to star in, um, as a voice actor. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Um, I'm writing a movie for one of my all-time favorite legendary directors, and um, and we're hoping that we will get a season two order on on Warrior Nun, and go back and and see that through because I really love that show. I love the cast and the crew, and you know all the writers are. It's just such a labor of love, and and it really turned out, you know, so much better than I expected. So I'm hoping we'll we'll go to Europe and shoot. Um, shoot season two uh well david i can't wait and uh yeah this has been absolutely fascinating kind of the parallel version of this film that might have been but um yeah well i I hope it was interesting i mean obviously this is a deep dive for people who are really committed to the world of Watchmen. (laughs) that's us but i really appreciate you uh you know digging in so deep and 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 really exploring all the different ways it could have been because it was a it was quite a journey You've been listening to Script Apart with me, Al Horner, produced by Camel Demek, with music by Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch by emailing us at the scriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.